So this afternoon I'll offer some reflections on self-love, self-compassion, and self-forgiveness. Through the lens of a personal story, and it's absolutely amazing for me to be here to do this. I don't know that I grew up with a lot of um, other men that look like, or men in general, um, that modeled self-love or self-compassion or self-forgiveness for me or around me at all. And so it's something that I've come to as an adult. Um, as my daughter would say, through some breathtakingly spectacular failings of an epic proportion. <laughs> I can get with that. <laughs> and my first time on this land, I came in my 20s, I lived in Marin, um, just in a little town just on the other side of the bridge. And I used to come here fairly often. My life was in a place of just, uh, just a, a, a tailspin, all sorts of things going on. And um, I had come across a, a couple of books on meditation and, and, and actually by that time had traveled to, to India and, and Thailand. Um, not actually to, to, to necessarily to um, practice, but it was vacationing. I was backpacking with friends and... Um, just an aside, that was mid and late 80s. And though I'm five foot 11 um, and with a backpack on, the number of people in India and Thailand that mistook me for Michael Jordan was absolutely <laughs> absurd. And I was wondering how, one, during the basketball season, was this six foot eight man traveling through Thailand and India. <laughs> So in my time in, in, in living in Marin and, and um, somewhere, somewhere inside, knowing I needed a, um, some spiritual reference, perhaps, um, I tried to make my way here. And I, I came several times, and uh, I would get to the parking lot, and I just wasn't able to come in. Um, I was pretty battered at that, that, that time. I had... Um, by then, 20 some interactions with the police, you know, just me trying to get from town into San Francisco to work. Um, by then, I paid close to $16,000 in fines for um, whatever the person that, that, that I was interacting with decided. Um, they were going to charge me with. So adding that with um, being in a place that uh, beautiful land and houses and, and many wonderful friends and folks um, interspersed with me 
you know, at times feeling like a monster or Godzilla walking down the street as people walk away from me, turn the other way. You, 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 you know, I, I, I would hear the, the car doors click. I would see the purses um, clutched. Uh, and all of that really, I, I don't know that I realized then how much that, that, that wore on me and how much that uh, ate at me. And it's interesting because I grew up in a place sort of what we called the Booker T town. So I grew up in, in Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, and most of the towns around me were, were, were all black towns. And so almost everybody that I saw and that I grew up with, whether they were school teachers or police officers or t- lawyers, dentists, doctors, were all people that looked like me. And, and because of the, these towns, these folks had, had escaped places actually not far away from, from, from where they got to. Um, there was a real sense of, of uh, pride and resiliency. And so I think I probably at some point in time thought that those things wouldn't touch me or didn't touch me. I'd get to the parking lot and I'd see people streaming in to go to meditation and I, 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 I couldn't do it. There was, some, there, there was something in me because of all these causes and conditions that came together that made that really hard to do. And I would be looking for one or two people that looked like me and somehow that, that would make it easier and I, I, I wouldn't see that. And I knew folks that were coming here. And like I said, these were actually some wonderful folks, folks that I knew, friends and things. I, I just needed, uh, uh, like I said, I needed to relearn to have compassion for myself or to have love for myself and be able to offer myself some uh, forgiveness for uh, being averse to the shame that I had for being in this body and for making people uncomfortable. For not being palatable. And then the added layers of knowing my own family history of the men in my family and having some shame and fear around who they were because I didn't want to become that. So at some point in time, I um, decided via some genealogy work, uh, family history work that I was doing. My grandfather was an oral historian. My father was an early 
African-American studies teacher, professor. And so we spent a lot of time um, traveling the country or talking about our, 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 our history and, and our lineage. So I decided I wanted to look at some of those things. I wanted to look at the, uh, the, the, the patterns. I was wanted to know why my uh, uh, ancestors are the way that they are. I wanted to look at um, intergenerational trauma. I wanted to look at all of our stories and find the, 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 the habit energies and patterns that were there and uh, sort of hoping to see what was inside of me. And I ran across this. And it's interesting because I actually didn't know who she was given the amount of history that I had been taught and um, the discussions and things that we had in, in my home and around me were incredibly beautiful. And then um, I realized most of that information that I got, probably 99% of it were, was um, from the lens of, of an African-American man. So I, I ran across this. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. It was Audrey Lord, And it spoke to me. Quite deeply. And, and I decided to take that. And merge that with my practice and meet my ancestors through that lens. So I'd gathered, I'd traveled to lots of little towns in Mississippi and Texas and uh, gathered lots of documents via phone and mail. And um, so I had hundreds of uh, birth certificates and death certificates and, 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 uh, um, Oral stories from you know some some of our older family friends and um, which was easy to get I, on on one side of my family we were uh, the block that we lived on was the same block as Alex Haley's aunt who offered him lots of stories so everybody on the st on the block once this had happened was 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 going through their history and offering stories it was a pretty lively place to be. I ran across a transcript from a woman who is my great-great-great-grandmother. It was a transcript written in 1971, and she was 100 years old at the time. And I would read through this transcript all the time. I was, I was absolutely in love, love with it, obsessed with it. There was lots of great, wonderful information in it. And then it dawned on me at some point that if it's an oral transcript, and it was in 1971, there's probably a recording. So 
I'm a late bloomer. It took me about four years to figure that out. And I looked at this document weekly. <laughs> so I set about trying to find the audio of this. And I managed to track down where the audio was, was done, where it was produced, and that, that university was now closed and absorbed into another larger university in Texas. And <clears throat> so I had reached an archives office in which I'd written letters and, and, and called them uh, over the course of a couple of years and could never get the audio tape. They couldn't find it. But I would continue to call back, and I would write. And one summer I reached an intern and I made assumptions by hearing her name and hearing her voice. And I talked to her in a way that family talks to each other. And I said, sis, there's an audio tape. I've been trying to get this audio tape for a long time, and they just tell me they don't have it. And told her what the importance was and what it means, means for me. And I said, uh, so... The audio tapes, from, from uh, 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 my intuition and from where I know that in the journey that I've taken to find this transcript and, and, and do all the history that I'm doing, the, the audio tape is there. It's in the back. It's under the box. It's to the left of the box. It's to the right of the box. Or it's above the box. Would you please go and check it out? She comes back half an hour later. And she says, bro, I got your audio tape. <laughs> she sends me a copy of the audio tape. And at that time, I was doing daily a practice. I was in the Thich Nhat Hanh community called Touching the Earth. And it's an honoring the ancestors practice. And I played this tape. And I could feel this woman. I could feel the texture of her hair, her skin. She sounded like my mother. She sounded like my grandmother. And they were unable to translate much of what was on the audio because I think they couldn't necessarily understand what she was saying. I knew what she was saying. And she talked about her church. And she talked about the kind of cotton that her parents picked and that she picked as a little girl and where they lived. Um, and 
and I used it as my guided meditation for, I still occasionally do. And somewhere towards the end of the tape, she mentions um, her father going to church one Sunday, and and this is just post this is post slavery going to church one Sunday, and the, so they were sharecroppers. Um, but they were sharecropping on the land that they had been enslaved on. So they hadn't, they hadn't gone anywhere. Most of them hadn't gone anywhere. So he had gone off to church, and apparently there was work that needed to be done, and um, the man who was now the owner of the farm, who was the dis- descendant of the folks who were the enslavers, whipped her mother because he went off. And so she tells this story. And I, was, and, and I, had, I had listened to it a few times, and it, was, it, was, it, it touched me. It was um, quite painful and, and moving to hear. And often I was, I was crying, so there were parts of it that I didn't hear, and eventually I went back, and she mentions the name of the man who had whipped her mother. And I hadn't actually had this information before. So I got this information, and I began to track this family. And this family was the family that enslaved my family on this land. Initially, I was tracking them just for, um, I was curious and interested in how much um, education and money that family um, was able to make and where they went in life versus my family. I was doing this whole study on my own. they were poor, uneducated people who were given land, given grant, um, then had one slave and then three slaves and then five, and they built things, and then they, their kids went from being uneducated to going to Phillips Exeter to traveling back to England. And, and um, my family was went the other direction. So I... Did, through more research, found um, a current descendant of that family and decided against the better wishes of, of um, my, um, one of my teachers at the time, multiple therapists, <laughs> that, because... I decided that this is something that I wanted to work with in my practice, in looking at uh, themes of, of compassion and looking at themes of, of forgiveness. And, and um, I think it was thought that I didn't have probably the, the, the uh, enough practice background to do so. Um, I'd come this far. <laughs> I was going to keep going. So I uh, made a few attempts to call this gentleman. Um, 
And at some point in time, in, in making those attempts, I had lost my practice. I was now focused on this family and focused on all these things, but I wasn't, the, the practice was no longer there. I wasn't really doing it. I was, you know, sitting for a little bit in the morning and maybe sitting for a little bit in the evening, but I wasn't sort of integrating the two, which is, which is previously what, what was happening. Um, so there was lots of uh, uh, um, anger and resentment and all sorts of things coming up, and I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware of what was going on. And um, I called him a couple times and would hang up. He called back after one of those times. And I heard his voice. It was a deep Texas drawl. And it was uh, instantly activating and triggering for me. And for me, I heard I heard a culture of domination. I heard the legacy of oppression. I heard the legacy of slavery in that voice. And so then starting to think, well, maybe the therapists are right. Maybe, maybe this isn't uh, something that I should move forward with. But I did have a, have a teacher that encouraged me to really look at just the basics of the practice as I'm going through this. And so I had an opportunity to call him again on a summer night. I was in Berkeley at the time. And um, I prepared this time. So I had all of these laminated sheets of breath instructions, meditation instructions, mental notes that I would use, um, reminders to come back to the breath. Um, reminders of speech to use. And so I called him. And we began to have a conversation. He was a little over 80 years old at the time, and he was still in that part of Texas. And it was interesting. So he had called. And even when he called by this time, I had already, I knew where he lived. I, I had been, I'd, I'd seen the house. I'd driven in front of the house. I knew exactly where he was, and um, you know, it's uh, rural Texas. He was uh, in, 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 in something that was then uh, Sons of the Confederacy, and there's a, a Confederate flag in front of the house, and the whole night. I mean, it, it was about as, as, as stereotypical as it could possibly get for, for, this, for this scene. So as we're having this conversation, he's, you know, we're, we're feeling each other out trying to find, so why are we having this conversation? What's, what's, what's there to, to talk about? And, and I told him I was interested in a very specific piece of history and, you know, a piece of information I wanted to know. Um, there were some records that his family would have had that would help me greatly, probate records. pictures, any other information that, that, that would help me to uncover more of my family. And I asked him what, not what's in it for him, but, but what, um, 
why did you d- decide to engage me in this? And he talked about an incident that happened when his mother was a little girl. And uh, she had been, during this in this part of Texas, she had been taken to, which happened often at that time, a public lynching. And it was a lynching of a black man. And, and, and somehow she had thought, or he had thought, that this was someone that was in my family. And I knew the incident that, that they were talking about. And um, it was someone on the same land, on the same property, um, not necessarily blood-related or... And, and I said, okay, so, we, you know, we, I was familiar with the incident that, that he was talking about, the tragedy that he was talking about. And he, uh, so I'm trying to do my, uh, breath instructions and I'm trying to stay with the breath and I'm, 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 I'm really making an, an effort for with all of those things and it's actually allowing me to be on the phone a little bit with him and uh, he, he uh, says that well you know my mother was really traumatized by this event her father made the, made the kids go and they went to several of these in, in different places around Texas Louisiana and that her father, his grandfather, had felt it important that they see this, you know, lest they be overtaken or overrun. And that it had traumatized her and affected her for the rest of her life in terms of drinking relationships, relationships that she had with other people. And she had uh, vowed to teach her kids something different, to teach them, as he said, she wanted to teach us humanity. And he realized that he got those messages and he heard it and that's what he grew up with, but given where he lived and the other causes and conditions, that's not what he displayed outwardly, that he had gone against his mother's wishes and what she, what she had taught, what she was trying to condition them to be, and that now he was at this age and, you know, feeling like there wasn't a lot of time left, and that... Um, He wanted to be clear and clean when he died, is what he said. And he wanted to finally be courageous, that he wanted to show some courage, the courage that his mother showed in actually um, raising them in a much different way than the immediate environment that they were living in. And at some point in the, the conversation, he asked me for forgiveness. And I, I mean, actually, before thinking of anything, I said, no, I don't know what I'm forgiving you for. Um, and then as I was 
continuing to listen to the story and listen. Uh, at some point in time, coming back to the laminated sheets and the compassion phrases that I had on the sheet and the, the, the simple meditation instruction. I mean, these simple, basic 2,600-year-old instructions for meditation that as I came back to those things, literally step by step, then I could actually pause and I could actually be with what was going on in here for me internally. And I could hear what he was saying. And at some point in time, it felt like there was an understanding and a realization of, of, of the pain and the trauma that his mother had and that what I was bumping up against it was a lot of my shame and here I was with the potential to possibly caretake this man that I did not want to do. And somewhere in there, there, there was... There felt like there became a place for me to be able to... remove the veil or just see beyond the projections that we had on each other and see beyond the labels, not bypass them or ignore them, but understand that there was also this pain that is shared, that I got a sense that he had an understanding of a very particular um, sick culture that he grew up in. And so we had that conversation, and he had said, his mother had, had said there, there, that um, it felt like she lived in a place that was where everyone was infected with this sickness of hatred. And I got a sense of him seeking his own compassion and forgiveness for lacking, perhaps, the courage and the bravery all through his life to actually be able to take a look at any of this. And at some point, he was completely overwhelmed and I could hear him practically hyperventilating. And because I was there, And I had awareness of the sensations that were happening for me, and I had awareness of my breath at that moment, and there was some stillness in that moment. I could actually offer him instruction. 
and he's, I mean, he's really huffing and puffing and breathing and, and almost hyperventilating. And I said, do you think you can take instruction from a black man right now? And he started laughing because I knew that would just jar him for a moment. And he said, yes, sir, I think I can. And so I offered this man instruction right there. And we were able to share that for a moment and continue on our conversation. And made plans to talk again. I didn't know where it was going or what would happen, but I would. I was done in that moment. <laughs> I, I was. I. I just. It was. It was enough. I was full. He was full. And so we never got to talking again. His children intervened and they were concerned that I would um, somehow publicly reveal, re- reveal them or, or out them or write an article or write a book. Or... So they weren't interested in uh, that. So they kept him from me. He died not soon after that. And the last time that I went to Texas, um, you know, I'd gone to do my usual research research, and uh, went to the gravestone where he was. And on the gravestone, against his wishes of what, what he had now, that him finding his courage, finding his voice, finding some bravery, making an effort, finally, after 80 years, um, you know, his kids decided to bury him with Confederate flag embedded in the gravestone at his name. <laughs> and I, I thought, and here I am, I find myself you know, offering myself metaphrases, standing in front of this gravestone of this white man with this Confederate flag, looking around like, I, 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 hopefully nobody I know is here. Um, I'm already having a hard enough time dealing with the shame. So yeah, I stood in front of that gravestone going, good Lord. Um, And so when we had the phone call and he talked about being able to or wanting to, um, you know, continue to have another conversation, he was like, I'd learn, you know, I want to learn how to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to fly with you. And I'm like, okay. Um, yeah, we can do this. We can, you know, step by step do this. And I ran, ran across this that I then um, later sent to him. 
when you get to the end of all the light that you know, and it's time to step into the darkness of the unknown, faith is knowing that one of two things shall happen. Either you will be given something solid to stand on, or you will learn to fly. And the last thing he said to me, he was enjoyed reading that, and you know, I think he, he said something like, "Well, you know, we could we could write a song together, write a country song together." And I thought, well, I'm like, the hell we can. Um, let's take this step by step. But my, the gift of the practice the ancient instructions the breathing instructions the Brahma Viharas the, the, the compassion and the metta instruction showed up for me and I was able to put my full attention and be there fully with that and faith I mean faith completely bloomed for me at that point right at that place And I realized that I wasn't actually caretaking and that there wasn't a bypass that was happening. And that the two of us had actually maybe managed to pierce or or touch each other's heart And in touching the fragility in the heart, then at the same time we were able to touch the compassion and the resiliency and the strength of the heart. And that was absolutely amazing for me and absolutely and incredibly moving for me to experience that. And it's interesting because I've told the story in, in several different ways and there's, a, there's oftentimes for, for years there was a whole piece that I left out so as to peer that I was not caretaking and so as to not have this part of sh- shame that was in there. Because there's a whole lens that I could tell the story through. 
But at some point I realized that I had actually brought my full self to that experience and I brought my full self to the practice. And if you can't find the truth right where you are, where are you going to find it? The cultivation of the Brahma-Vihara practices of metta and compassion, condition action, and the intentions and qualities of the heart-mind inevitably color how one engages in the world. And they advocate action in situations that require intervention. This is a key aspect of these qualities. So these practice instructions that we have been gifted, should we commit and take the invitation and try on the process, allow for an unfolding of the practice that touches a deep peace, allowing one to rest in awareness, touching both the fragility and strength of the heart, from which self-compassion naturally arises and cultivating the possibility of self-forgiveness. I'm still working on self-forgiveness in that scene, in that story, in that experience. It's the process what's most important rather than the end result. Yeah, I would love to be there and I'm not there. But I can use the teachings and the practice to continue to keep my heart open or open my heart and seed the field so that forgiveness is a possibility. And it actually takes a, a resolve of, of practice, a continuity of practice. It's, it's a 24-7 opportunity and it's a 24-7 job. When we resolve to cultivate continuity of mindfulness, this direct experience or first-hand realization of the Dharma will unfold naturally and we may experience the more subtle energies and impulses of the mind where we clearly begin to observe, possibly at a cellular level, the noticing and discernment of thoughts and intentions about ourselves rooted in greed, hatred and delusion, and thoughts and intentions rooted in self-love, self-compassion, and self-forgiveness, inclining the mind towards the latter.
And by no means with the story that I shared is there, should there be any expectation that this is what you should be doing and that this should be your journey and that self-compassion and, and that self-love and, and self-forgiveness needs to look anything like this for you at all. That's, that's not what I'm doing. And for some of you, this isn't, um, it's not an invitation to bypass at all. I'm not advocating bypassing with this. This was an incredibly difficult journey, an incredibly difficult connection. I'm just advocating committing to the practice, to committing to the teachings, that if you're going to look at forgiveness, then Self-love is key. Self-compassion is key. And this is from Dina Metzger. Give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and begin again. Through the faith I have in this practice and in the, the teachings, I'm clear that there isn't anything that I cannot work with and I'm clear that there's any place that I cannot be. There isn't a parking lot you will find me sitting in wondering should I go in or not. More than likely, I'm wondering how long is it going to take before you know my name. The teachings and the call of my ancestors has allowed me to be in a place to not psychologically diminish myself, to not be small, to understand that not a monster, haven't been a monster. And I understand the complexities of, 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 of race and gender in this country. And I still hear the car doors click and the purses. And I can actually still smile. And I can still say metta and I can still say compassion phrases for anyone. feeling full. Thank you all.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.